Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. Headlines across multiple Australian cities recently are all concerned about a similar thing. Blood spilled in the heart of Marrickville, a new front in Sydney's gangland war. Police responded to reports of a public place shooting. Police march into the homes and hideouts of our most dangerous criminals. Causing maximum disruption to the outlaw motorcycle gang network. Is gang violence escalating in this country? With shootings in broad daylight, a gravesite desecrated and bikey strongholds being raided? Are we facing a wave of organised crime that the average Aussie needs to be concerned about? Today we speak to a former detective who gives us some insight into how organised crime works here in Australia. But first, your news headlines for Monday, August 14. The Matildas will be focusing on recovery today as the players gear up for their semi-final clash against England in Sydney on Wednesday. With just a four-day turnaround from their penalty shootout win against France, the players will now be under the care of the team's medical staff to ensure any niggling soreness is gone by the time they take to the pitch at Stadium Australia. Katrina Gorry, Alana Kennedy, Claire Hunt, Steph Catley, Ellie Carpenter, Caitlin Ford and Kyra Cooney-Cross have all played at least 476 minutes out of a possible 480 since the World Cup tournament began, so they're making sure any tired legs are able to get back to form before Wednesday's game. The family of the survivor from a group of four people poisoned by mushrooms consumed in a meal made by one couple's former daughter-in-law have thanked hospital staff and the public for their support. Baptist Church pastor Ian Wilkinson lost his wife, 66-year-old Heather, after the pair ate the mushrooms in a meal at Leon Gather in Victoria on July 29. Miss Wilkinson's sister Gail Patterson and her brother-in-law Don also both died. In a statement released yesterday, the family said they are deeply moved by the outpouring of kindness prayers and support from friends, family and the broader community, thanking the Austin Hospital staff for their unwavering care and support. Just weeks after a new pathway to citizenship opened up for them, thousands of New Zealanders have signed up to become Australians. New figures show more than 15,000 New Zealand citizens have begun the process for Australian citizenship since the changes came into effect at the start of July, meaning Kiwis who've lived in this country for at least four years on a special category visa can apply for citizenship. Immigration Minister Andrew Giles said the changes had strengthened the bond between two countries, saying 15,000 of our closest friends had applied to become Aussies. 
A Russian warship has fired warning shots at a cargo ship in the Black Sea, the first time this has happened since the end of a UN-brokered grain export deal last month. Moscow said on ending the deal that they deem all ships heading to Ukrainian waters as potentially carrying weapons, releasing a statement saying its patrol ship had fired automatic weapons on the Palau-flagged vessel on Sunday after the ship's captain failed to respond to a request to halt for an inspection. The Russian military then boarded the ship and conducted an inspection before allowing it to continue to the Ukrainian port. The Matildas have become the biggest TV ratings hit in Australia in more than 20 years. The Seven Network has released details of Saturday's win over France, which had a peak audience of 7.2 million people, second only to Cathy Freeman's iconic 400-metre race at the 2000 Olympics, which drew an audience of 8.8 million. Those figures don't reflect those who watched in one of the public viewing spaces or who tuned in via Optus Sport. That's your latest news headlines in a moment. Today's Deep Dive. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. On a Sunday night back in July, vandals broke into a mausoleum in Melbourne's Preston General Cemetery. Vandalism at Australian cemeteries isn't overly unusual. What is interesting about this case is whose final resting place was targeted. The vandals smashed open a coffin belonging to the sister of a feared underworld crime boss, George Morogi, who's currently serving a 32-year sentence for murder. The final resting place of Meshlin Morogi, who died in 2021, aged just 30 from COVID complications, was broken into. The perpetrators destroyed items inside the mausoleum before dragging the coffin itself a short distance and cracking it open. Police are investigating whether this was done as a message from a rival gang, the incident coming after a series of firebombings and torchings that have been reported across Melbourne, all linked to feuding Middle Eastern organised crime gangs. In Sydney, there's been a month of shootings connected to suspected criminal gangs, some committed in broad daylight in front of shocked witnesses. Two men miraculously survived a daytime shooting at a Marrickville barbershop. Days later, three people were shot in a targeted attack at Greenacre. One of the victims died. Three days after that, criminal lawyer Mahmoud Abbas was shot in the leg outside his home. The next day, another man was shot and killed outside his house at Canterbury. Police say they're working under the assumption that all of these incidents may have been motivated by the June 27 death of Comanchero bikey figure Alan Moradian. Meanwhile, across Western Australia, New South Wales, South Australia, Tasmania, Queensland, Victoria and New Zealand, National Task Force Morpheus seized weapons, drugs and money while laying hundreds of charges as they raided bikey properties. In March, Northern Territory Police arrested 40 members of the Mongols' bikie group for the alleged supply and distribution of methamphetamine. Police say that operation destroyed the group's leadership. 
In Adelaide, however, the Hells Angels have had a win over the state government who were trying to stop members of the group from entering a property that they use as their base of operations. The government has vowed to continue to crack down on them, SA's Attorney-General Kaya Ma saying they'll use everything at their disposal to make what they do as hard as possible. So are all these headlines showing us that there's an escalation in organised crime across Australia? Dr Michael Kennedy is an associate professor in the Department of Criminology at the University of New England and a former New South Wales detective. He says when you look at Australian organised crime on a global scale, we're actually a very small player. Probably the same as New Zealand. We don't stand anywhere. It's probably one of the safest countries in the world. The usually international surveys or comparisons is based on homicide rates and we're just not even there. So in terms of Australia with organised crime activity, the problems are just nowhere near that they're being predicted on the front page of newspapers. With the majority of the gangs we've heard about today, their crime of choice involves the production, supply and distribution of drugs. But Michael says while, yes, drugs are a big part of the organised crime networks, the reason they are is sometimes a lot more complex. It's more important to say that it revolves around making money. That's what organised crime is about. It's complicated because a lot of organised crime that's committed by different groups, it's around extended family relations so that by the third generation, the family's not so involved and their children have been to university and they've become lawyers and doctors. And there's some sort of security for the organised family, not the organised crime family, the organised family as such, or the extended family. Extended families are where whole families maintain relationships. Usually they come from the Mediterranean, Arabic-speaking region of the world. And the reason that they exist is because the state offers no social welfare safety net. So families have got to provide for themselves. In most Western countries, there's a nuclear family because the state provides a safety net. A good example of extended family relationships is the mafia. It began as a family-based thing to protect families that were struggling. And in extended families... Heads of families play a big role, whereas in the nuclear family, which is pretty well dominant in Australia, two people can marry each other and their families will only meet each other at the wedding date and never probably see each other again. Drugs play an important role, but we shouldn't just think it's just about drugs. It's about the big end of town propping it up. It's about political support. It can't exist without the big end of town giving escape hatches for people involved in organised crime. And without accountants, without lawyers, organised crime wouldn't be able to exist. So what are the differences between those gangs who operate on that extended family model as opposed to organisations like bikey gangs? Michael says instead of doing what's needed to just survive, their ideology is a bit different. Well, if you look at bikies, they really began post-World War II. A whole range of ex-servicemen were bored and rode motorbikes. And it's not anarchy, it's libertarianism, where they believe they should be able to do whatever they want without government telling them what to do. And as a result, they also have this code 
as long as you're maintaining the rules, whatever they are at the club, you're free to engage in whatever activity you like. So they're allowed to be entrepreneurial. They have legitimate businesses. And there's a lot of them that aren't. From the early 70s in Australia, the outlaw motorcycle groups started getting involved in the distribution of Indian hemp, marijuana, and also in the distribution of amphetamines. And amphetamines were made here. So they would make one part of the product in one place, then move it all to another place. They'd even move it in between states. And it became impossible because it was only a prohibited substance when it reached its final stage. It's a very cheap drug, amphetamines, and what's graduated from that has been the methamphetamine. But a lot of the distribution took place on the periphery of outlaw motorcycle groups. Then in that, there became a competition for the money involved in it, but that also included legitimate businesses, panel beaters, tow truck organisations, video shops, tobacco shops, tattoo shops, bottle shops, liquor outlets. These sorts of businesses are always the means by which they try to legitimise themselves. And so there's always competition. And the first thing that happens when there's a bit of a dispute, when they're using firearms, it's usually when things have got to a breaking point. There are many news services who are currently reporting that organised crime is escalating in Australia in 2023. But these same headlines can be traced back through the decades. Michael says when these stories are reported, sometimes we want to see a connection between an incident and it being something done in revenge due to gang connections. But that is not always the case. Let's look at the issue in Melbourne of the desecration of that grave. Number one, you're dealing with a community there that is from the Middle East. They're very devout Christian people, even if they're involved in organised crime. I can't see for a minute any of those families desecrating that body for revenge. But it seems that one of the reasons for desecrating the grave was to get the jewellery off the deceased body. And I think probably the investigation needs to find out how would anyone know that there was jewellery on the body when it was deceased? And there's a lot of avenues for that. In terms of the drive-by shooting, these sorts of attacks have been with us since the beginning of time. The Razor Gangs, we go back to the 1920s and 30s. Shootings have been a product of organised crime forever since firearms have been around and readily available. And it's the way criminals deal with things. And I don't think anyone should be surprised. It might seem that there's an escalation, but there isn't in real terms. Generally speaking, they don't drag innocent members of the public into it. And when people are dragged into it, it's usually by accident. When I was a detective in this area, there were no secrets. We know who did what. We know who's behind it. The problem is information from a conversation, intelligence and evidence are three totally different things. Getting people to stand in the witness box and talk about what they've seen and what they know is an unreasonable sort of call. Why would, if you were in an extended family or you were part of an outlaw motorcycle group or even just a drug dealing group, why would you then jeopardise your family and everything? just to be a good citizen and give evidence publicly. But they do talk to authorities, and authorities are aware of what's going on. 
we know that there are task forces both on a state and Commonwealth level whose focus is to stop organised crime here in Australia. And they have been successful in putting members in jail, seizing shipments of drugs, rescuing women and girls from the sex slave trade and taking weapons off the streets. But Michael says they will never be able to end organised crime. They can only manage it. The best you can hope for in the police is to make organised crime players more discreet, interrupt it so that it makes it more difficult for them. The government could do a lot more with organised crime by simply engaging in confiscation of assets legislation and stripping bare the families that have made millions and billions of dollars out of organised crime. Police are just functionaries. They don't make the laws. It's like expecting nurses to fix up all the problems in the health system. They just can't do it. All they can do is manage it and try to make sure it doesn't get out of control. Movements is what organised crime are, and it's hard to define who's in charge, who sets the standard. It's hard to know who's really running things. And what the state does, it tries to portray organised crime as this hierarchical system like the state is, like the military or the police. And organised crime is not like that. It can have leaders, but it also allows people to be independent and it allows people to be entrepreneurial. And so it makes it very, very difficult to find out who's actually organising things, who's making money. The other difficulty with organised crime is opposing groups will rally together for one particular job, say importation for argument's sake, and they'll make the money and then they'll split again and they'll be competitors. And so it's not as simple as forming a task force and then following everybody around police will tell you we've located five tonnes of methamphetamine and this has put a stop in the distribution of drugs. But anybody who's involved in that area knows the next five tonnes is on its way already. It's an unregulated market, so we never know just how much is out there. The one question the people of Australia who are not involved with criminals are left with is, should I be worried about it? Generally speaking, it doesn't impact upon them. And what the public have to think is we have various freedoms that in a lot of countries where organised crime is controlled by the state and it's not controlled by private enterprise, in a lot of countries those freedoms don't exist for people. So freedom doesn't come for nothing. There are people that are going to abuse those freedoms and take advantage of it. But it's not something that the public should be concerned about because it doesn't impact upon non-members of these groups, generally speaking. I know people say there's a rise in it. Well, there isn't. And it's no more dangerous now than it ever was in the past. So I don't think the average member of the public needs to be concerned. I mean, you've got to be vigilant. It's like with your car. If you go and park your car in the shopping car parking area and leave the windows down and the keys in the ignition, it's quite likely that eventually it's not going to be there when you get back. So you take precautions. It doesn't mean to say there aren't any car thieves. They don't have a lot to worry about in terms of organised crime of this level, unless there are members of their family involved in either drug dealing or drug taking. The Quickie is produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Kelly Borg, with audio production by Tom Lyon. Thank you.